Hi, my name is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Before we start with the podcast, I have a few things that I'd like to mention. The first is that we've set up a special email address where listeners of our podcast can send in questions related to Agile, Agile transformation, basically anything about Agile at all. Just send your question to soundnotes at leadingagile.com. You can send it in text form, you can send a WAV file or any kind of audio recording of yourself asking the question, even video would be okay. What we're going to do is take the questions that we get, and in a future podcast, I will be joined by a few of our enterprise transformation consultants. We'll talk about your question, we'll talk about some possible solutions, some ideas, some things you might try when you get back to work, so that if you've got something that's going well, you can make it go better, and if you've got something that's not going well, we'll give you some suggestions or strategies for things you might try to change to make it go a little more smoothly. So again, any question about Agile or Agile transformation, just send it to soundnotes at leadingagile.com. You can send it as text, you can send it as an audio file, or you can send video, whatever's easier for you. We just like to get a lot of questions from our listeners so we can start to incorporate that into the podcast that we've been doing. Again, soundnotes at leadingagile.com. The second thing I want to mention is we've set up a special discount code for podcast listeners who are interested in taking one of our CSM or CSPO classes. You can find a list of all our upcoming classes by going to leadingagile.com training. We're currently doing classes in Atlanta, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and San Jose. So just go to leadingagile.com training, find a class you'd like to take, and enter the discount code SOUNDNOTES to receive 10% off the list price. Now, onto the podcast. Hi, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Today, Dan Greening is back, and we're going to be following up on some conversations we had previously about the Agile base patterns, um, some of the things that you have to do if you're trying to figure out if you're Agile or not, and then there's some some more advanced ones. So what we're going to talk about today is, is all about metrics and, and some of the stuff that Dan is currently looking at when he's trying to assess portfolio health. So we're going to talk about the health of the portfolio, we're going to talk about abandoning work, and we're going to talk about some fitness functions as well. Um, before we get into that, Dan, can you kind of give a, a quick overview of how um, these leading indicators are, are playing into the way you're looking at things and why they're an important part of the base patterns that you've defined? Sure. Uh, so, uh, first of all, leading indicators are really important. And uh, just to set the stage, leading indicators are things that you can measure relatively easily. Not too much cost is involved in measuring them, as and they don't take very much time to measure. And uh, so you can identify the health of your portfolio relatively early in its lifespan uh, and, and adapt if you see that the portfolio is getting less healthy, let's say, or if there are things that you really want to fix. So if there are lagging indicators which most, you know, more accurate metrics might be, those lagging indicators take so long to measure, cost so much to measure, that you don't do them very often. And once you discover something about your portfolio, you actually may not have time to do anything about it. You may have spent most of the money or, you know, that sort of thing. And so what you want well, to do the is... The horse is already out of the barn and you, you figured out that you left the barn door open. Yeah, yeah. So this is sort of applying agile methods to measuring our own agility in a way because these health metrics for portfolios are directly related to the agility of the portfolio. So it gets kind of recursive and then we all go kind of go crazy. But maybe what we ought to do is just talk about the metrics 
in general. Uh, before, and, you, before you get into that, can, can I ask, you, you just said a phrase that I, I kind of want to pause on for a second. You said agility of the portfolio. Yeah. So can you clarify what you mean by that? Oh, sure. So a portfolio is a collection of products that are funded by the same source. Um, so, for example, you know, someone gives a, a company or a department a big pile of money to explore a particular market or to produce products or advance products for a particular market. So, <clears throat> so we like it in Agile if the pile of money is not given to specific products, but rather is given to some higher level people to thoughtfully invest over time. This gives them the freedom to allocate more money to a very productive and profitable product and then uh, make decisions over time. It may turn out that that profitable product is nearing its lifespan. And so maybe you don't want to invest in it, but you do want to invest in some opportunities that appear. Well, we think that the people that are, you know, comparing these products are often the best people to make those decisions. And those people are the portfolio people. That's the way that we think of that. So oftentimes a portfolio is a whole company. If you have kind of a medium-sized company, let's say a thousand people or 2000 people, that may be the portfolio. Um, but of course we're dealing with large companies that may have 30,000 people and some department may be a portfolio. It gets a pile of money, and they have some freedom to invest in one product or another over time. Does that make sense? Does that help? It set? does. It does. I, the, the, the thing that I'm, I'm wondering about is when you say the agility of the portfolio, I guess I would normally think of we've got a bunch of projects. Some of the projects we have in the portfolio, those are agile. Some of them are traditional. But uh, I'm assuming that when you talk about agility, you're referring more to the flexibility to kill or continue different things that are going on and to change direction and stuff like that. Is that? Oh, accurate? absolutely. Yeah. I have a, the way I conceive of agility is it's what we say is scale free, meaning that you can have agile teams, you can have agile people, and then you can have agile groups and you can have whole companies that are agile. And so the way I think of agility is that what we want to know about any one of these entities are uh, is can the entity adapt fast enough to succeed in the economic environment that it's working in? Does that kind of make sense? Yes. What I'm saying? Yes, it totally does. And and when you when you're talking about uh, agility of the portfolio, that's I guess an aspect of what some people would now be considering business agility because that's such a popular topic. Correct. I, I think of that as business agility. Absolutely. Um, okay. And 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 uh, and those timescales are bigger too. So those are you know it's no longer usually a two week cycle time dealing with an economy when you're talking about millions of dollars a year being spent on even software or whatever it is. But right. uh, at this portfolio level, the timescales that we start talking about are like three months, like a quarter. That's generally what I like to look at when I'm talking about, let's say, seven or eight products 
that are vying for the same resources. Uh, and, and so with this three-month timescale, we're saying, hey, what are the most important things for us to invest in? So that would be your backlog of epics, let's say. And then uh, when we figure out, we figure out what to invest in by looking at them and saying, this is about how much we estimate it will cost. And this is about how much we think it might be worth in revenue, let's say. And so that becomes a sort of speculative profit ratio. And of course, we want to invest in the most profitable things first, because if we invest in those first, then we start earning more profit, and then we can use that profit to invest in lower profitability things that might already be in our backlog, or we might come up with some new ideas about what to invest in over time because our knowledge of the market improves over time, and you know we just keep doing that. So this is what happens on a portfolio basis, is you're investing in products or epics of about three months or more in terms of time frame. Okay. So so you so you've got these three things, right? And oh and yeah. So, so let's talk about them. <laughs> let's so, talk about the three things. <laughs> let's talk about the three things. So here at this portfolio level, <clears throat> what what are we worried about? So one of the things that we do want to worry about in an agile portfolio or in business agility, if you will, is lead time. So here's how I like to think about lead time. It's the amount of time from the point at which you identify a very profitable item until the time that you can actually deliver that item to a market. So a lot of that will depend on the amount of time it takes you to actually get approval for finance. And even prior to that, you have to do some uh, investigation of the marketplace so that when you go to the finance department, they have enough information to tell you whether you can bother spending the money or not. And then <clears throat> now that you've got the money, now you have to hire people potentially if they do that. They're, the time that it's going to take them to reach the marketplace could be quite a while, right? Because they have to start recruiting, and then they finally assemble the team, and then the team has to go through that process that you and I often talk about, which is forming, storming, norming, and performing, right? Well, <clears throat> all that stuff takes time, and then finally they're performing, finally they're developing whatever product you want them to develop. And then you have to get it to market, which requires a supply chain. And now the supply chain is part of your lead time because it's the time from the point at which you have this great idea until the time you actually deliver something to a customer. And so that is the lead time for a portfolio or for a company. So, so if if we if they had an innovation center, mm -hmm. then that's something that would help reduce the theoretically reduce that time. If they kept teams around whose job was to spin up new products or, or things like that, yeah, um, that would be one way to to achieve more agility. Yes, and you know we talk about that at Leading Agile that um, 
that stable teams is a really important part of an agile organization. And part of it is that we want you, we would rather have you create a, a bunch of stable teams with smart people who can learn new stuff and then contribute to uh, a new product than we would want you to have the ability to hire specialists and assemble teams you know, on the fly. <clears throat> and I think the reason that we like that is because uh, communication patterns and, um, and that sort of thing within a team take a while to establish. And so if you're hiring new people to serve a new market, then there can take some time to actually uh, you know, get those people to communicate reasonably, and it's no guarantee that they will. And it's, I think, I just want to check in with you on this. It seems to me that I can see where people might be listening and thinking, okay, well, that's great. I'm going to have a bunch of teams standing around waiting to be innovative. Um, <laughs> but there is, there, so there's a cost associated with the agility. You have to have, I mean, to yeah. get to that speed, you've got to have people who actually are occasionally sitting around waiting. Um, yeah, actually. Or, or driving true. change on their own. Yeah. Or contributing to you know less profitable things in the company, or helping build the capacity of the company over time. Here is the big trade-off that people make in agility. We uh, be you know when you think about waterfall, if you really were able to use all your resources efficiently and there weren't communication problems, and of course I'm abstracting away a lot of really important stuff, but regardless, you know, waterfall in a theoretical sense, if you're just producing something one shot and you know exactly what you're going to produce and you have the right people to produce those things, and then when you ship it, you're guaranteed to make the money that you thought you would make. Waterfall. What world do you? What world do these people live? In? I know some kind of theoretical world, but this is the world that these people are living in. I mean, we really, you know, I I think that we really need to talk about this theoretical world because once you start talking about it, people realize that that's not real, right? But still, this is what we do. We go into companies and we say, "Oh, we're going to produce this product." It's going to be a waterfall thing because that's so efficient. And then we like run through and we know we're going to make all this money because it's virtually guaranteed. And then 18 months down the road, you ship the thing and then it turns out, well, you were probably wrong. So we said we would be willing to pay an enormous price to reduce the failure rate because the failure rate was 29. It's roughly 29 percent complete failure rate for software projects uh, and using waterfall is 29%. And so we said, wow, that's a lot of money we're throwing down the drain. We would be willing to pay quite a bit to reduce that failure rate. So the, the thing that we came up with was ship more than once, basically ship every four weeks or so to the customer and touch the customer and make sure this is what they really want and use that feedback to adjust our priorities going forward. If you look at that, that there is a big price to doing that. And the big price 
largely is testing because you build like a month's worth of functionality and then you have to test it. Well, that's not so hard in the first month of the project. But as you go through the project, you get six months in and you've got six months worth of functionality, much of which you have to retest because you, you, new code that you develop could have harmed in some way. You could have called it a regression bug. The functionality that used to work stops working because of some software you do. So you have to do all the testing all over again. And that stuff accumulates. It's very expensive. And so only until we started being able to do automated testing were we able to really get agility going. The same principles apply to these larger entities like portfolios. You want to be able to deliver these things easily and inexpensively to the marketplace, and then you want to be able to do it again and again. And many companies are not really, at least traditional companies, are not really wired for that. I I want to ask you a question about this. So when you say... um the lead time from when you when you identify the need until you deliver to market. Yeah. Just to make sure that this part is clear. Um, in the in the old traditional way, let's say it took you a year to deliver anything to the market. So you go through all that time, you put something out there, maybe people buy it, maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. But in this in this approach, you are delivering probably significantly less each time, but more frequently and building upon what you've already put out there. So it's you may get to that final state that you would have you know in the one year plan, or you mm-hmm. might not. But you're learning and inspecting and adapting along the way, and maybe even killing the thing off if you need to. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's really great about this sort of portfolio thinking. So if you have a bunch of products under your portfolio that have a single big pile of money you can explore those multiple products and you may kill off a product or two along the way. And that should be okay if the products are not likely to be profitable. It's good to know that early. Uh, And so we see some really interesting ideas, of course, the lean startup stuff where we're making product managers come up with hypotheses about what the market is likely to buy, and then trying to figure out ways to perform experiments about uh, whether those theories are really true or not that aren't too expensive, that might be able to be done in three months or even less. And so those, when you do that sort of early market testing, and if you can get relatively accurate results about how big the market is, you can kill those bad products really early. And you can take all the savings that you got off of those products and invest them in more profitable products. You know, if you get in one of these portfolio environments, your baby could turn out to be not as beautiful as you thought it was. And, uh, and then you really ought to give up the money that might be used for building this product and give up the ugly baby. Yeah. To provide it to (laughs) teams or something like that. That's a terrible analogy. (laughs) (laughs) It went in a really interesting direction though. So if you have, so, but, um, so the first thing I guess I just want to go back to this again. So getting anything into the market, anything that you put out there, 
that would have as much value or maybe more value if I was able to deliver something within four weeks as opposed to waiting a year. It's putting something out there that we can actually test customer reaction to. Right, right. That's really important. So that lead time, uh, the shorter the lead time, the more rapidly you can adapt to things in the marketplace. But of course, there's a trade-off, right? If the lead time is shorter, the amount of functionality you can test in the market is smaller. And so you have to be much more creative about what you're going to push into the market because probably the number one thing you want is to learn more about the market because uh, you want to make sure that you're on the right path and that your investments are sound. And so, that's, that's a significant shift too because it's it's not we've got to hit a home run every time we walk up to the plate, but we're going to learn how this guy throws the ball so we can continually get better at hitting off of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you can measure the lead time for a product. And the way I like to do it is, you know, you have something super important that hits your backlog as an organization. And then you measure how long it takes before that thing is delivered to a customer. I mean, that's kind of a way of thinking about leading indicators. We want them simple. Uh, We want them easy to calculate. Because in making those calculations, then we can make decisions rapidly. Okay. And it, do, it does sort of lead to the second thing we were going to talk about, which is abandoned work. Because along the way, there is going to be a bunch of stuff you're going to just toss out the window. Right, right. Hopefully it's not too expensive, right? So, <clears throat> so there is value. So abandoned work is a bad thing um, if we talk about it in terms of cost, so, uh, or time even. So if we do a lot of work, uh, and we invest a lot of money in that, and then we get to some point and then we have to abandon that work either because something else seems much more important or because we realize that what we're pursuing is not important at all, uh, that, that abandoned work is, um, is problematic for an agile organization because in a sense you can think of it as related to the lead time because the fact that it's in the system you're working on it means that the teams that were working on that abandoned work couldn't actually go over and work on the stuff that you're really going to keep right so uh so there that abandoned work is actually slowing the system down. So uh, so you can measure that too. You can measure that in terms of epics, uh, which are major pieces of functionality that might be in a product. Oftentimes those epics are seriously abandoned. I mean, it's kind of shocking to me when I'm dealing with larger companies that this happens so often. But it really does. You know, like a company might say, hey, you know, we're going to invest a whole bunch of money in a particular market. And then they invest a lot of team time, could be two, three months. And then they get to the point that they're actually going to deliver it to the market. And and then they realize that the market is not at all interested in it. And so that work is abandoned and we can construct ratios like we can say well what percentage of our work um, del- is is actually abandoned 
uh, either before we actually deliver it to the market or soon after we deliver it to the market, realizing that the cost of maintaining this product in the marketplace is going to be higher than any uh, return that we might get from it. So isn't that a positive thing, though? Because, I mean, I can see the negative side of it, but it also seems to me like the fact that you're – having the awareness to kill these things off instead of just continuing to pour money down the drain, that's a very positive thing. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, of course, as long as the percentage doesn't get too high, <laughs> right? Um, and and actually, the cost part is really the issue because there are many interesting techniques that you can use to reduce the abandoned work cost relative to the actual productive work that is completed. And so the you know lean startup is one example but there's a zillion types of examples all in both the lean uh, world, the lean manufacturing world of value stream analysis and that sort of thing, as well as the agile world with our iteration and the stuff that we do in in agile. But regardless, the, it's the cost ratio that's important. The time ratio, you, you know, actually what I really want is I do want the number of attempts to uh, explore a market to be relatively high, but I want the cost and the amount of time required to be low. And so it's a very interesting. I, I think agility forces companies to be creative about how they handle markets. And for the first time, in many cases, these behemoth companies are starting to think thoughtfully about how to explore and improve their market. You want to see lots of attempts. I'm assuming if you're going to see lots of experiments or lots of attempts, you should expect to see kind of a a corresponding level of failure. But do you look at like, what is the percentage of things that get abandoned or is it, I mean, how do you kind of quantify what is healthy and what is not healthy there? Yeah. So we can look at, uh, so if we think about the, the abandoned work costs in agile versus waterfall, I think I mentioned the 29% thing that yes, you did. Yep. 29% of waterfall projects are ultimately abandoned. All that work is completely wasted. Um, and then uh, it turns out that having invested in testing and iteration and all this stuff, it drove the um, failure rate down to 9%. So, you know, people outside the software industry will say 9%. Oh, my God, that seems like a huge failure rate. But you and I, being in the software <laughs> world, we're going outside. Like, holy crap, that's awesome, right? So yeah. uh, so, so that, that was a really good investment. Um, okay, so let's go back to we were talking about abandoned work, and so I did say we still that are. I feel like we're still talking about abandoned we're, work. We're, we're doing it. <laughs> we're doing it. We're we're talking about abandoned work, and and I mentioned that you know if your failures and your successes have the same cost, uh, then it you should get a fifty percent failure rate on your experiments. But in fact, usually our experiments when they fail, do cost a little bit more than when we succeed. And so your your failure rate might want to go down 
a little bit in order to compensate for that extra cost. And so this is just a way to think about it. And the reason I think about this little nuance is that um, uh, uh, Reinertsen, who's kind of an author in our field, has done some numerical analysis, and he proposes this 50% rule. And, and then you go look at the world and you go – you know what, people are not failing at a 50% rate, and why is that? And it's it, it's because of this, this effect that I'm articulating here, is that the uh, 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 failures are often a little bit more expensive than successes. And so always keeping that in mind, you know, you want to figure out how to make your failures really cheap. So low-cost failure should be rewarded for sure by large organizations. And this is another problem that I think large organizations have. They have very, they have difficulty with nuance, right? So if you make a little failure, they can't tell whether, they, they have a hard time distinguishing a little failure that you learned from, from a big failure that costs millions of dollars. I mean, and to the human beings in these organizations, especially these organizations that have such powerful brands that millions of dollars doesn't mean a whole lot. <laughs> to the At least not now. <laughs> right. Not to the individuals in the organization. They're just trying to protect their career, right? So yeah. they just shove that under the rug like they did the last one. So they they um so so in these kinds of situations it's it's um very hard to express to people that low-risk failures are what you're looking for and you actually want to be supportive of those. And then if you do get an enlightened uh, CEO or an enlightened senior VP who thinks this way and flows these values through the organization, you get a really healthy, innovative culture in organizations. But that, too, is very hard, right? That requires a certain amount of discipline on the part of these SVPs as well as hiring well so that their people also communicate those values throughout the organization. And, and, and maybe one of the most important aspects of that is that culturally, the whole organization has to move away from the idea that failure is always bad. Sometimes failure is the right thing. Yeah. I mean, we learn a lot from failure, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I've had I've had a couple of spectacular failures, and of course, I've learned enormously from those, but they were very, very <laughs> costly. But then I have these embarrassing failures, you know, like that they really don't hurt me that much, uh, but I learn enormously. And I've learned, you know, now that I'm 57 years old, you know, like I look for those events and I try really hard not to be shamed by them, but rather to examine them closely and see what I did well and what I didn't do well and whether the, you know, the problem might have been in the circumstances that I was put in or, you know, the circumstances I put myself in. And so those failures are really important learning experiences for us as well as for large companies. I think I think that's a really important thing. I mean, it, it, to a certain extent, I think failure, it would be great if failure could be celebrated a little bit more because, yeah, it sucks when it happens, but like you said, you are learning. And for an organization that's transforming, people, if they're putting themselves out there and taking risks and trying to find the new thing, 
then they're the ones that are actually helping the future version of the company survive where it is right now. Yeah, absolutely. And those are the people that we should kind of reward, I think. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So uh, cultures are where that happens, and and you know we could talk forever about culture, but we're not going. But that'll to. be a different one because we have one more thing we have to talk about. That's right. We do have one more thing to talk about. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're moving forward. Now yay. we're going to talk about fitness. <laughs> so the the third a third metric that you can use to measure the agile quality of the portfolio is uh, some kind of fitness function. <clears throat> so this is a comparison of what the uh, expected result was for the product you're pursuing and the actual result that was achieved. And so, you know, what's kind of funny is this there, there is something that we do on every scale of an organization. We measure the cost of something, and we're actually pretty good at measuring that sort of thing, right? Like we invest in a team, and we know how much each person costs, and we know how much um, uh, and all that stuff. And we can compare it against the costs that we estimated up front, you know, so – in a scrum team, we estimate the number of story points and we get a velocity and we can actually start measuring how long it really takes to deliver a set of features and how does that compare to what we thought it was before. We can get really accurate about that. All that cost stuff is really accurate. But what's kind of ridiculous is the complete inaccuracy we have about value you know like uh so so when we're on a scrum team we think this feature is really valuable and this thing is you know not quite as valuable and then we order this backlog but if you think about how backlogs are ordered it's super unscientific Right, like we give it to a product manager or a product owner, and say, "Hey, it's your responsibility to figure out what's most valuable and put it at the top of the backlog." But we we don't provide much but qualitative ways for them to order that backlog, and that's because value is speculative. It's I would say it's even more speculative than uh, estimating the cost or the story points required to deliver a piece of work. But then in addition, the variability is really high, right? Like you could say, oh, I think this is going to be, you know, worth a million dollars. And then you get it into the market and it's worth like 150 million, right? Like no one knew that people would really love this thing. But there are ways to assess some of that stuff. There are some, I mean, wouldn't you say that Kano analysis is a fairly scientific approach to understanding perceived value in the customer base yeah okay i mean it's i don't know i'm asking i mean i to me it's more scientific than moscow but i don't know if that would meet your, your standards <laughs> but. okay but um but how does it compare to the estimation techniques we use to estimate cost right that's what i'm trying to get at Kano analysis okay. is really great you know like you can figure out the delighters and the exciters and all that stuff that's great does it give you a number? I mean, that's what I'm asking here. You know, I, I okay. and the reason no, I but say, how but how would you actually figure that number out? Right. So I, I mean, this was uh, it's a really good question, right? So I when I was at Citrix, I 
I felt this contrast, right? Like between the estimates that my engineering teams were producing, which were off by maybe 50% or something like that. And then I would go over to the product management group that had a big portfolio. I created a portfolio backlog for them early on. And then I said, you know, we really ought to rationally order these giant projects that we're doing, these epics that we're doing, and they really ought to be ranked by profitability. Like, what is the estimated revenue or cost savings that you'll gain from doing this work? And then divided by how much work we had. Well, it turns out that the numerator was, I mean, the the variability on the numerator was, it turned out to be enormous. Like you, we, we would ask a product manager, hey, how, long, how much money are we going to make from this, like, let's say, you know, voice conferencing system that we're thinking about building? Oh, we looked at the market and it's like, going to be at least $69 million the first year, and then it's going to grow exponentially over time. Billions of dollars. But but that's because they want the the thing to get accepted, and they know that the only way – I think a big difference here is if I've got a product I want to get approved and I want funding for it, then of course I'm going to find a way to come up with the right kind of estimates to make that happen. If I ask somebody about how long something's going to take – they're not trying to win anything there. They're still going to have to do the thing. That's true. That's true. That's one That's one bias that's uh, really true. The other one is that um, I, I think it's that the error bars on uh, value are much wider. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I, I actually think that speculating, this is sort of, speculating on high market knowledge and creativity and, and, that it turned out, you know, I tried to do something called net present value analysis with this uh, product manager group. And they did come up with numbers and then we did compare them later. And, and it just, they were always off by huge margins. So, I mean, they were multipliers, right? Like they were, um, you know, off by a factor of 10 or 20 where, you would go to the engineering team and they wouldn't be off by much because, you know, first of all, story points and velocity is something that is highly correlated to delivery of functionality. So it's much, it's much more accurate in that world. Um, And partly it's because we're doing something that we've done repeatedly over and over again when we're estimating effort. But when we're estimating value, oftentimes we're introducing some new innovation in a market that the market's never seen before. And so it's really hard to know. Anyway. So so, can I play devil's advocate on that for a second? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know this stuff much better than I do, so I'm, I'm very curious about this. So I would think that if, let's say I've got a guy and he's got this new thing and he estimates that it's going to make X number of millions of dollars. When that thing hits the market, you know, however long it's in play, it makes a per- small percentage of that. If if we track the variance there, couldn't we, in the same way that we would look at a team's historical velocity, couldn't we say for this particular guy who is figuring out that what it's going to be worth, he's he's off by an average factor of X. So when he says it's a billion, it's maybe a quarter million. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I think you're awesome. I think that is that could work. 
Um, and in some ways, we sort of see that. Um, so uh, who's the guy that's the CEO of Idea Lab? His last name is Gross. Um, but anyway, this guy is, has you know, a batting average that's really enormous in terms of finding great markets and putting out new companies, basically creates new little companies out of this quasi-venture capital plus innovation lab group. Um, Anyway, uh, so he would be highly correlated or we would be able to get a correlation function between his investments and whether they were successful. And I guess we could argue that too with some very successful venture capitalists that they're more likely to identify winners. But, you know, even the best venture capitalists are probably getting a 20% hit rate. And what I mean by that is that 80% of the stuff they're investing in basically is abandoned, right? So that's that's a big variance, right? Even for the best, the best. So I, I want to pull us back a little bit. And we are talking about fitness functions, right? We are We are talking about, you know... We we expected to get some ginormous value, and our actual value is really low or it's really high, that sort of thing. What uh, what you want to do though in assessing a portfolio's health, uh, if you're trying to be agile, is you want a leading indicator for that, right? You don't want to wait until you earn the profitability on this investment that you made in this. Uh, idea in these epics, you want to see if the customer really does like what you're doing. So one of the, the a very simple survey you can use to determine the fitness of the product or service that you're providing is something called the Net Promoter Score. So the idea here is that uh, you ask one or two questions. The first question you ask is always, uh, what is the likelihood that you would recommend this product or service to a colleague or friend from zero to 10? So where 10 is completely likely, you're always going to do it, and zero is you're never going to do it. So uh, when people answer that question, uh, we say if they're from 9 to 10, they're a promoter, uh, and uh, they're going to tell their friends about this product. If they're from 7 to 8, they're neutral, and if they're 6 or below, they're a detractor. So the way that you compute this net promoter score is you say, what is the percentage of promoters? So that that percentage minus the percentage of detractors. And when you do that, you'll end up with some number between 100% or minus 100%. And so the general idea is if you get zero or above, you're probably doing okay. Uh, Of course, we want to raise the score no matter what. Um, What we really want to do then, though, is to find out the answer to the second question, which is what would raise your score? So now you get some kind of free format thing that allows you to type anything, and we start collecting all that data to determine, uh, you know, what are some ideas about making this better. 
And we can even segment them by, you know, how do we get people to not be detractors anymore, but at least be neutral? Or how do we get people who are neutral to actually go viral and really recommend our product to other people? So this is a super simple fitness function for the team or product or service that we're providing. These kinds of fitness functions are suitable for virtually anything I, I think that they're suitable for people in roles. They should, you know, say, would you recommend Dan Greening to a colleague or a friend as a, you know, agile coach? I, I think that that is a responsible question. And then I would love to know the answer. What would improve your score? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, so these kinds of, revealing survey type of things are really important in this fitness function. You can also measure other fitness functions like we talked about. You can um, say here is our estimated revenue produced by you know this work and then you can say here is the actual and you can do this comparison that you talked about. And I, I suppose yeah. I dismissed it a little bit and I apologize for that but I actually <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> but you know in reality I just that area is so problematic and this is the this is one of the interesting things about metrics in general is that um you know experience with them is really important right like there's some metrics that work really well and some that are completely perverse you know the the you think you're measuring something really important and then it turns out that what you're measuring is actually driving bad behavior. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think my example was a little maybe silly too, I, but I would, I would, I think it would be really cool if eventually we were at a point where an organization was able to, to track um, things like maybe it's an assessment of how much revenue we're going to get. If there was some way to get to the same state like that they have in baseball where they can say, okay, it's it's a Tuesday night, this guy hasn't pitched in two weeks, the last time it was a Tuesday night and the temperature was like this and he pitched, this is how many how many innings he was able to play and this is how many strikes he threw and you know all the other metrics that go along with that. It would be great if we could get to a point where we could do that with people in work or teams in work who are estimating things. Um, but that would be collecting a lot more data than we do right now. And, team, and we'd have to have much more stability than we have right now. Well, we would be in one of those big cubes that the Borg lived in, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's what that's all about because you have to track everybody over the time period and you know what did they actually succeed at and so forth. And I do think you know, we'll probably get there at some point in the future. But um, at this point, we don't have that um i i i do like this idea though and and i like this idea of optimizing our work i think that lean startup you know this idea of lean startup is is similar that we have a fitness function but we try to figure out what the fitness what a super cheap fitness function could be that confirms or denies that this market is as big as we think it is. And, um, and that cheapness makes it a leading indicator. So, you know, when we create a startup, let's say, that is some kind of social media thing, then we want to know if we put this out, how many people are going to use it. We want to know how many people are going to share it because that creates virality that increases the value of this thing. 
And then we may actually want to know, can we monetize it? So we may have some theories about how much money we might make every time someone does something. And we need to figure out how to test that cheaply. And if we can yeah. test that cheaply, then, uh, then, then that would be great. Don't you think this is interesting? This leading indicators just has a huge, rich, really interesting area of discussion. I, I, do, I think I think they are individually interesting. I think they're for me they're far more interesting when they're put together. Like, yeah. It, when we talk, you know, because we just talked about look at me sliding, segueing into the summary. Um, we talked about the lead time. We talked about abandoning work, and we talked about net promoter. I think. That, that it's it's for me it's the combination of the three together that makes it probably more complex to look at but much more interesting yeah actually and it's much more useful uh you know one of the things that i often tell people is that if you're only measuring one metric it's usually perverse what i mean yeah. by that is that it drives you of course it drives like it for lead time for example if if all we were focusing on was lead time we might create a lot, a very tiny amount of functionality, and we might get huge amounts of abandoned work, or the fitness of what we produce might be really useless. Um, and then, but what happens is when we include abandoned work into the mix, now it's forcing us to pushing back a little bit on the lead time. We have to produce enough functionality that we're not going to abandon it. And then with the fitness function, now we're actually trying to maximize value. So the three of them kind of work together and they push against each other a little bit and the the end result is a better outcome. So less perversity cool. because we have multiple metrics in play. Awesome. Cool. So if if people want to follow up with you on this stuff, or and I know there's other things that you look at as well, um, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, you can reach me at my Leading Agile email, which is dan.greening at leadingagile.com. All right, and they can also go to Senex Rex as well, correct? Oh, that's right. I have a blog, Senex, uh, S-E-N-E-X-R-E-X dot com slash blog. Cool. All right, and I'll put links up to both those. Dan, thank you very much. This was a, a really cool conversation. Oh, um, thanks so much, I love Dave. talking about the metric stuff, so thank you. Okay, cool. 